1964, the military seized power in Brazil and ruled the country for the next 21 years. Under the pretext of national security, Brazil's military rulers issued special decrees to override the authority of the country's elected officials and to strip citizens of their constitutional rights. The most infamous decree, Institutional Act No. 5, known simply as AI-5, or Aisanko in Portuguese, empowered the government to imprison and torture thousands of suspected enemies of the state. State-sponsored violence peaked between 1968 and 1974, a period known as the Years of Lead, because of the hundreds of citizens who were murdered or disappeared by the government. How did Jair Bolsonaro use the memory of the period of dictatorship to catapult himself to the presidency? How did these very same uses of the past contribute to the catastrophic loss of life in Brazil during the COVID-19 pandemic? To answer these questions and more, I'm very pleased to welcome Leda Balbino. Leda is a journalist and researcher in Brazil. She works as a deputy editor at the Rio de Janeiro-based newspaper O Globo, one of Brazil's leading newspapers. I'll be talking with her today about a recently published book, Digital Memory in Brazil, a fragmented and elastic negationist remembrance of the dictatorship. Leda, thanks for taking time for this episode of Realms of Memory. Thank you so much for hosting me. <laughs> so I, I was hoping you could start just by talking about how you got interested in this topic, because it, it sounded like from what I read, this is something that really ties in with your friends, your family. It's, 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 a, it's a personal subject. Uh, it was the electoral campaign in 2018, uh, which really made me feel uh, a serious discomfort. I remember that um, relatives and acquaintances uh, showed they would vote for him, and I felt really puzzled about it. It was difficult to understand how a person so openly against human rights and in some aspects so representative of what I see as civilization retrogression uh, could attract so much support within different groups in the Brazilian society. It was not possible to just put like the blame on people's stupidity as we usually do when we see someone saying something different from what we think because he had a lot of support among very bright people and very well-informed people. So I intuited uh, that the reason should be different. I remember at the time I was in a newsroom back in Rio de Janeiro, uh, where I work in uh, Global News, and I said to a friend, we need to understand what is happening. So I felt like very, very, the need very, profoundly the need of understanding because it really was a discomfort for me. Like I didn't understand the logic and I, and I knew that there was a logic that I was missing. So then this need of understanding and this puzzlement uh, um, made me head in 2018 to my master's in England. And, and when I started to, where I, I started to dig in the problem. Leda sees the popular backlash to corruption scandals as the most important reason for Bolsonaro's rise to prominence. In 2014, investigations into a money laundering scheme involving a seemingly insignificant gas station with a car wash 
exposed one of the biggest corruption scandals in Latin American history. The powerful state oil company, the country's largest construction company, together with elected officials reaching the highest levels of government, were caught exchanging hundreds of millions in bribes for contracts. What became known as Operation Car Wash implicated leaders from a wide range of political parties. But public wrath focused on the ruling Workers' Party, which had long boasted about its squeaky clean reputation. Its most prominent leader, Lula da Silva, was convicted and spent nearly two years in jail. Lula's successor, Dilma Rousseff, was cleared of charges, but then impeached and removed from office for manipulating the budget to finance her 2014 presidential campaign. Because if you think like about Workers' Party, that it was the major left-wing party in Brazil, um, it all the time was like um, doing his campaigns, its campaigns, and um, and saying that he was really morally elevated and very had a very clear rectitude about uh, not uh, uh, taking money from the people in illegal ways. So in 2014, uh, and back actually in 2005, we saw some corruption scandals uh, coming out. And and then the image of the Workers' Party got really tarnished. Like people were like, well, it's not, it's contradictory with with your discourse because you say you're uh, you're very very morally high and then now you are stealing from people from the public money, so it's it's it generated a sentiment of really discomfort uh, among people. So so Bolsonaro was very clever in a way of canalizing and and finding out the discomfort in people and trying to and canalize in itself, in his image, the idea of rectitude, of the idea that he would fight the, corrupt, the corruption and he would fight the criminals. And that was really clever, actually. If corruption scandals undercut confidence in and support for the left, so did the left support for populations subject to racism and discrimination. In a lot of senses, uh, Brazilian case and the United States case, uh, especially considering that Trump uh, arose to power in a time with increasing inequality in the United States. And um, I think it's like the sense that uh, the political class seemed more worried about um, identity politics, uh, minority policies, then uh, rather than with uh, bigger problems. So it created like not that it's true, but for some people, like why are you discussing identity politics if I need to pay rent? And it's really expensive. So I think like in the same way as United States, it created that sentiment of what's the point of neutral language <laughs> if I don't have money to pay the rent or if I don't have like a health system to help me with my diseases. And so I think 
there's a lot of layers that enhance the discomfort in Brazil. And, but corruption, like, because like in the book, I, I tell this, that the idea of corruption in all its senses, it was the main force in my view, because it was not just the corruption of money, but also the corruption of um, what conservatives uh, thought about their own identity. That I don't, I don't want us to talk about all the time people, homosexuals, uh, of gay people or the rights for them to marry or the rights for um, black people to go to schools. There was a dis- at the same in, in the United States, like, uh, why do you need quotas? Uh, you must go to the college by merit. So in a lot of stances, uh, there is a very similar scenario uh, of Brazil, very similar to United States. Uh, it's so true that Bolsonaro was called tropical Trump <laughs> because they really had like very similar uh, word views. So you have this this context of of uh, uh, of upheaval uh, and. Uh, uh, unease uh, in Brazil uh, in the 2000 teens, right? Uh, with social changes uh, pushed by the government, uh, corruption scandals, uh, uh, and uh, at the same time, there's a kind of battle over the past, you can say, that's that's taking shape, right? If you see that there's a lot, if you're on the right and you think that there's a lot wrong with going wrong with Brazil, uh, then maybe you look to the past as as a better time, right? Uh, uh, a time where your traditional values were were more secure. Uh, a time where where the system seemed cleaner, or you thought it might be cleaner, uh, more stable. Um, and so, it, uh, I mean, is it fair to say that uh, Bolsonaro, long before he comes becomes president, he's he recognizes this is a this is a uh, an important uh, uh, political tool that he can use. That there there's a receptive audience out there for nostalgia for for the for the past, uh, uh, and a lot of people might look look to that period of of dictatorship as as a better time compared to the present. Yeah, for sure. I, for example. In, Many people in my family, my own family, uh, would say, for example, oh, it was a time where you could go out in the street uh, with security. There was not that uh, you were not lacking risk for of suffering violent crimes. Um, so it was a nostalgic also for the sense of security that the period uh, gave to people and the idea that People who would be tortured or repressed, uh, the reason is because they committed something wrong. <laughs> so they were, were um, rightly uh, punished. There was this, all the time you see this type of arguments. The left wing, more in Brazil, more a lot of times goes and goes to the complexities of things. And what I saw in the right-wing discourse is that he, they are go to the simplest way of conveying a message. 
So uh, like the left wing in Brazil or the progressive think in Brazil is more academic, more difficult to entail. And the right wing, not that you don't have right wing academics, of course, but um, right wing politicians as Bolsonaro, they are really straightforward. They are really clear how they're going to pass the message. As I said before, it's like there is a real bad actor and a good actor. And then they, they, uh, as Trump do as well, like it's really simple to understand what they are saying. In that sense, a lot of, um, of Brazilian people who didn't feel they were represented in discourse politically, they couldn't like discuss that. They were like ostracized of this kind of discussions that patriarchy and structural racism and like very big words. <laughs> and the right wing gave them, no, you have the words to talk about your own reality. And it's simpler. Yeah. So the right can ap appeal to people in language that they can understand. Uh, uh, and uh, they've got a receptive audience dur during that, that time period. And uh, the past is just one way to appeal to people in the present. Look how much better it was. And I think you, you mentioned like what one of, one of Bolsonaro's slogans was, we need to go 40, 50 years back in time. It was not a slogan. Yeah, it's not a slogan. He was in an interview and he mentioned that ah, my, my plan, my goal with my presidency is to go back 15 years because not. And he mentioned the security and the things like the traditional values at the time, because the, at the time there was not I, discussions about identity politics. It was really uh, society was simpler. Uh, and so I think they crave for a simple, sim a simple way of explaining really complex reality, um, and that's why I think there was so much appeal. I think, like, if I think about uh, relatives and some of acquaintances that voted for him, um, I see them feeling empowered of being able to discuss politics because they have the words. They feel like they feel represented, not just represented by the discourse, but able to use it, it and feeling as a political actor. Uh, whereas uh, in with most left-wing parties, um, uh, there was like this complexity of the discussion of the problems. And I think a lot of people felt marginalized Um so the discourse, the language that they were able to create, like using as one of the tools, the military dictatorship. Uh, I mentioned that in the book. It was a language, uh, uh, a language that uh, integrated people to feel they were politically empowered. And it's really powerful, actually. <laughs> because it's a way of... Uh, of uh rallying people around the idea that they're defending their, their country. They're defending their country and that they, because all the time he was like um, the popular will, so the popular sovereignty, he was like the most important symbol of that. And through language and through social media, because I put that in the book, um, Social media gave like the direct linkage between the leader and the people. 
or the chosen people or the people he represents. Uh, and he represents as it was Brazil. Like the real Brazil is the one who is not for Cuba, the one who is not for Venezuela, who wants to extirpate left wing because left wing, all left wing is communist. <laughs> like it was really simple. Like, so let, if you are left, you're communist. <laughs> <Is that? laughs> like, and in some ways, in a lot of ways as United States. If there's dissatisfaction on the right with the present uh, and people look to the past as a better time, something that needs to, they, they need to return to in as many ways as possible, then the government in power on the left is taking a very different position on the past, right? You mentioned that they're starting to look into this past much more thoroughly. And I think you mentioned that Brazil is not the only country in the region that that has the that's had the experience of a military dictatorship, but it it addressed that past very differently than than its neighbors. I was hoping you could comment on, on that a little bit. I mean, how do countries like Argentina or Uruguay or Chile how do they deal with their own history? How does Brazil deal with the memory of dictatorship in, in a very different way from its neighbors? Mm -hmm. um, so uh, uh, Brazil was the most slow uh, to implement policies to tackle the past uh, related to the military dictatorship, as you already mentioned, from 1964 to 1985. And while, for example, Argentina and Chile created truth commissions soon after the end of their military regimes, um, in some cases prosecuting uh, forming human rights violators, um, Brazil first adopted financial reparations to compensate victims. Besides, uh, Argentina and Uruguay's amnesty laws got revoked in Brazil, on contrary, the amnesty negotiated in 1979 as part of the political transition is still in effect. Um, in this law, like the first paragraph of the Brazilian amnesty uh, meant forgiving crimes of any kind, such as torture committed by military and police officials responsible for the repression, uh, the second paragraph excluded from forgiveness participants of the armed struggle. Uh, so because of that characteristic, this feature of the amnesty law in Brazil, the researcher João César de Castro Rocha, who I sit in my book, uh, and I quote him, he, he says that by making this differentiation between the military and the people involved in the armed struggle, amnesty true sense was conciliation through forgetting the crimes of the military. Um, so in so many ways, it's possible to assert that this tackling of the past uh, opened up disputes about uh, this memory in Brazil and also the negationism that uh, you can, I, I saw related to Bolsonaro's government. But that amnesty itself, to me, sounds like a, a rewriting of the past, too, right? Because you're, on the one hand, you're saying, well, let's forgive and forget the armed struggle on the left uh, and the abuses of power by the military regime, like they were equal, right? 
like they were a proportional weight, right? And I, th- I think your point is that that the, the monopoly of force was on the side of the government. Uh, the weight of abuses was on the side of the military regime, right? Uh, and they benefited far more from from this from this amnesty law. Yeah, totally. And I think it's important to remember that they controlled the transition. So we opened up in 1985. So the end of the the official end was 1985. And the transition started in 1979. So it's six years earlier. And through all this time, they, they controlled the transition process. And in that sense, they could like deter, uh, determine um, they wouldn't be punished, and that this past should be should be forgotten. Uh, that's why, as I mentioned before, when um, mostly governments after the during the the, the new democracy the, after the redemocratization. Started to, to um, insert themselves internationally, and in that sense, needing to abide by by international laws related to human rights. It started to change and um, reveal this past, and created this kind of discomfort within the military. Because, well, the amnesty is there, and we should not talk about it. Is it more pressure from the outside to to start to look into this past? Uh, there's not, uh, you know, the, you don't have uh, uh, grandmothers of the disappeared, you know, out there uh, demonstrating in some central square uh, in, in in Brazil, you know, demanding that, uh, you know, that that you know something, you know, demanding to find out what happened to their loved ones. There, there's nothing internal w- within Brazil. You think the pressure for openness is coming largely from the outside? No, no, I think uh, in Brazil there was a movement. Like, for example, I sit Bra- uh, Brasil Nunca Mais. It was um, um, work that uh, congregated a lot of um, um, the widespread use of the state force to, to repress uh, the civil society. And so, and a lot of, and also arose a lot of memories of people who were exiled or were uh, persecuted and so on. So there was, yes, a civil movement uh, uh, to, to tackle this past. But also there was this insertion of Brazil in the international uh, sphere and uh, the need to abide to some laws. So I think there was like, both, both, both things. What, what, what you're saying, and it's interesting to point out, is that although there was the amnesty law, people would recall what happened with them in the period. And so when you try to, even when you try to hide um, this memory, this memory comes alive. Um, so... That's why I, I point out in the book the military memory community because it's a kind of a counterattack against this memory that come about from uh, exi- people who were exiled, politically persecuted, and like journalism books, uh, 
theater, everybody, uh, they are, they are, the, the artist field started to produce a lot of content related to that past. So even with like Damnesty, like people were, were trying to figure out what has happened. And, and, and also the academia started to study the period. So that memory work is happening. It's happening uh, in, in, in society. Uh, different groups are working on the past, but the government itself doesn't really start doing that memory work until you get into the 2000s, right? Yeah, a little bit before, like in the 90s, with Fernando Henrique Cardoso. He started to put up the first commissions and so on, but very discreetly. And then it it uh, grows up in time, up to 2012, sorry, that there, there you have like our Truth Commission uh, that was put forward in the end of Lula's uh, second mandate, and then with Juma Rousseff, who was uh, one guerrilla fighter and who was tortured during the dictatorship. So there was a... The, the Truth Commission um, institution uh, starting to work within a government of a person who was tortured. <laughs> it was really symbolic. And um, it really generated um, discomfort in some uh, some part of Brazilian society. Um, I um, it was like a, so. Um, if you think it took a long while, so as I said, like uh, Chile, Argentina um, put the truth commissions of them uh, um, after their military regimes, immediately after, and Brazil was just 27 years after. So it took a while, but uh, it was the major initiative investigated in human rights crimes committed by the military regime. Uh, the commission submitted its report on December 2014, counting 191 dead and 243 missing political dissidents, uh, its reports also estimated the number of people tortured between 2,000 and 20,000. It's a very difficult number to to really register, but they estimated this in this range, and identified almost 400 people directly or indirectly responsible for the violations. Uh, it's one, what is interesting, yes, we, f- we compare the numbers of Brazil, the numbers of dead, with other dictatorships in the region uh, in the same period, Brazil's number seems relatively lower uh, because the number in, of dead in Argentina, for example, would be more, at least more than 8,000. In Chile, the desaparecidos, disappeared people, would be like 3,000 people. Um but it's important to understand that Brazil uh, had a relevant role in also helping to foment authoritarian regimes throughout the region at the time. It, so it was not just that Brazil had a dictatorship and it had uh, created a lot of trauma and problems and persecution and censorship and uh, loss of political power for uh, a huge uh, amount of people, but also it had a repercussion and um, 
in, in the whole region during the, this period of the Cold War. So Brazilian dictatorship, like because people normally think about the dead when they say if something is bad or good, <laughs> or if it's uh, repressing or not. Ah, there was no, not so much dead people, so it's not repressive enough, you know. And it's a kind of do you, you? It's a kind of simplistic answer to a more complex problem. Like in twenty-one years, uh, with all the differences that happened within the dictatorship throughout this period of twenty-one years. It also had um, impacts outside Brazil. Okay, so you have you have this Truth Commission. You have reports that, that start to get uh, published by the government on what happened during that time period, and at the same time, I think you mentioned the military is coming up with its own narrative of the past. It seems like when there's a critical, a closer look at, at what happened during the period of dictatorship, the military is trying to respond. Uh, with its own version of, of that past. So how, how does it do that? I mean, how does it explain, explain what happened? It's very, uh, the idea is very simplistic in the sense that, um, so um, if I can, uh, long story short, like the, as Bolsonaro says, like they deny that it's a civil military coup. Uh, since in their view it would be a revolution against uh, uh, a attempt, a attempt of communists to be installed in Brazil. And it, they also denied that was a military dictatorship since for them the military acted to safeguard the Brazilian democracy. Um, and so the armed forces community of memory, as I put in the book, uh, on, on the period is stable since the 1960s. Um, its recollections start to be published from the end of the eighties, exactly as a response, as I've mentioned before to the books and plays and all material produced by exiled people and former political prisoners narrating dramatic experiences, particular torture. And the former member of the military dictatorship felt that the, the rescue of this memory uh, by, uh, by people who, who suffered repression and most of them from the left uh, it was this kind of rescue was a violent violation of the amnesty law. Uh, that, as we said before, the principle was compromising, so forgetting about the, that past. Um, one key work uh, for the military memory on the period, and also for Bolsonarism itself, is called Orvil, uh, which was written to counterattack denunciations made against the state. Uh, basically, it was a counterattack with Brazil Nevermore, the work of Brazil Nevermore. And the tactic they used it was expose crimes committed by the left-armed struggle. I think here is important to, to point out as well that armed struggle in Brazil was not, uh, not happened throughout the 21 years of dictatorship. Um, majority of its years was like in the 70s and the end of the 60s and the beginnings of the 70s 
And it was not that well structured. So in that sense, was you've, as you mentioned before, like to equalize so the repression of the state with the armed struggle is kind of unjust uh, and not fair because uh, the armed struggle was not that well structured. It was not, not ever a real um, menace or threat to the military regime. But they use that as as, uh, as the torture and the armed struggle in itself, in the memorialization of the left about the period, uh, got uh, turned itself in the emblematic factor of the dictatorship. The counter narrative was against exactly that. So, in some ways, both both spectrums simplify the period. And ironically, maybe the memorialization by the left helped the right wing <laughs> and the people nostalgic of the dictatorship to create a counter-attack memory. So the right wants to cast this period of the 1960s as a period of revolutionary upheaval with the, the regime as the... the Brazil itself is really threatened, right, and could go in a dangerous direction, and they had to intervene on behalf of the nation yeah. and, and, and yeah. the people. and have to torture people and kill people right. because— But I think you mentioned that yeah. that uh, it was a period of protest and uh, student protest, and uh, uh, the system was being challenged in some ways. Maybe not—it wasn't threatened. Maybe there wasn't a revolutionary threat, but there was—it was a period of—, of, of uh, uncertainty for maybe for conservatives in Brazil that well, maybe I, th- I thought you suggested that was more the real reason that why the military might have stepped in that it was there were changes happening during the time that they felt uncomfortable with I think like the, the contest is important because it's the cold uh, is the cold war and there is the unit uh, the Soviet Union so there is this idea that maybe Brazil could be in danger of becoming a communist uh, regime. Not that was true at the time, but you could easily like uh, convey this kind, this type of message. So a lot of sectors in, in I just said that, and I, I think like if it was, it was, it is easy to understand that was an easy message conveyed at the time because some people up to now believe in that. <laughs> so, so it's really something very easy to convey. I thought your, I thought your point was that uh, the military made it look like there was this real revolutionary threat. They had to intervene, but in re- in reality, it was a it was a turbulent period. That there were strikes, there were protests, there was political opposition exactly. within the Congress. Uh, and maybe they were more uneasy about that uh, and and just came up with a pretext of, of a, a revolutionary threat to seize power. I think uh, I think some parts really believed that were like communist threat. But after they arose to power and other sectors and themselves realized that 
uh, it was not that true. And this is what the scientific knowledge, right, that you refer to that like Bolsonaro doesn't recognize that the, if scholars work on that period of, of Brazil's history, they're not pointing to revolutionary groups that had the means to really take over the government. Exactly. Exactly. But yeah, in that sense, it was a protest because through the military and other sectors that wanted power could achieve power or putting forward like some economic um, agenda that they wanted. And the the disruptive, like, because like the military arose and some people thought that they would like just... Um, uh, like uh, overthrown uh, Goulart government, the reformist government, and then give back to the civil branch uh, the power. But they maintained the power throughout 21 years. Uh, so you started to see in Brazilian society a lot of discontent in relation to that because it was a coup arranged between the military and civil and part of the civil society, but ended up just being a military dictatorship uh, in the sense that uh, many of the uh, of members and groups and sectors of the civil society who supported the coup started to uh, distance them themselves, uh, including the media uh, after the 1968 uh, Institutional Act, because it started to, the, the, it was like the increasing, um, um, uh, the repression increased in a lot of senses, not just about violence, but also like, for example, censorship in newsrooms, censorship in the artistic scenery, and like political repression in the sense that People who, who were not aligned, politicals who were not aligned to the military, would not be able to to work and put forward the ideas and so on. So you started to foment a lot of discontent within uh, the sectors who first uh, supported the coup, and um, and then that's why the repression increased because they felt they needed more repression to. Uh, to maintain their grip and power. Okay. Uh, but I think your point too about Bolsonaro is that his memory of this period of dictatorship, he doesn't invent that on its own. I mean, that it, it really, he's taking it from places like the, the Orville narrative, right? Uh, that uh, explaining how the military came to power and it wasn't really a coup and, and why this was necessary. That's his reading uh, of, of the past. And, uh, so he is serving uh, as a as a congressman uh, for for what what do you say thirty eight years for for a long period of time twenty eight uh, twenty eight twenty eight years mm -hmm. uh, and how open is he about this this reading of the past? He was really open uh, all the time. <laughs> he was never ashamed of his positions. I um, so he. He all the time was denying it was a civil military coup during the, his president. He did that, and and also described uh, as the as the military community the period as averting communism regime in the country. Um, 
So during his seven consecutive terms as a federal house representative, uh, Bolsonaro has never been regretful of the military regime. Um, for example, the wall behind his office seat in Congress exposed framed photos of the generals uh, who commanded Brazil over the period. Um, and according to a data analysis uh, that I cite in my book, he mentioned the authoritarian period in one-fourth of the speeches delivered, delivered in Congress from 2001 to 2018, usually in nostalgic tones. And moreover, uh, Bolsonaro has often referred uh, positively to other violent authoritarian Latin American governments, such as the Chilean dictatorship under Augusto Pinochet, uh, the Paraguayan regime under Alfredo Stroessner, um, and the Peruvian government under Alberto Fujimori. Um, in 2016, during the impeachment process of Dilma Rousseff, as I said before, for not for corruption, but for breaking fiscal and budget laws, the, uh, he was a congressman and he dedicated his vote against her to Colonel Carlos Alberto Brilhante Ustra. That was um, um, the person that um, coordinated a torture unit in Sao Paulo known as Hell Branch in the 70s. Uh, he said in the vote, um, uh, and I quote, they lost in 1964, they lost in 2016. Uh, so he was referring to Dilma's impeachment, 2016. Against communism, to the memory of Ustra, the dread of Dilma Rousseff, uh, he said at the time. And that's your that's your example of elastic memory too. That if he's saying, you know, there yeah. there's there's uh, serious threats on the left within the political system uh, that uh, we've succeeded in in uh, in thwarting. Um, well, that's the same thing uh, as as what happened in 1964, right? Exactly, as if we were like stuck in in the Cold War mindset and Cold War. Contest and Cold War uh, threats. So he has this long track record of of uh, really using using the nostalgia for the past for uh, the his political benefit in the present. A lot of people are unhappy about the present. They they see the past as a better time, and he can he can borrow from that military narrative of 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 how you should understand it. Uh, and he can make references to the past to explain what's going on in the present. Uh, and But then he's elected, uh, and um, he continues that. But now he's got the office of the presidency he can, he can work from. Uh, and uh, maybe he's already been using social media like Twitter and, and, and YouTube uh, to promote his, his reading of the dictatorship. Um, but he can re really ramp that up. He can increase that. And he's, and he's working together, you mentioned, with his sons, Eduardo and Carlos. And they're mm -hmm. all using mm -hmm. social media to offer this reading of, of the period of dictatorship that you mentioned has certain kind of common features uh, that uh, 
that you, you mentioned there's this one-sided reading of the past. There's a effort to distinguish between the new and the old media. Uh, and there's this dismissal of scholarship. I, I thought I was hoping you could maybe discuss some of the examples that you ran into where you see these you know, typical ways in which which uh, Bolsonaro and his sons, as Eduardo and Carlos, use use uh, social media like Twitter and YouTube to to, mm-hmm. to offer this reading of the dictatorship that has these these common features. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what is the, one one point that I want to make first is that. Um, the memory of the military dictatorship used by Bolsonaro and his sons, and not just by them, like because other uh, authorities within his government also um, conveyed this message in various uh, instances. Um, uh, it was it was like their main the the core uh, of their the way they think of cultural war. So it was like the main piece uh, for uh, distinguishing themselves against their rivals and opponents and and with the uh, in opposition with the left. So it it was a tool to use as a cultural war. So using the past to do to breach with a lot of present instance, and also with the idea of future, because uh, I mentioned Orville. Orville was the book uh, that, besides trying to counterattack the narrative uh, against the violations of the state by putting, by describing the crimes committed by Dharmit's struggle, it also uh, presented the, um, the idea of communism as something that. Uh, is not over that the the, the book tries to to uh, puts the left as a ubiquitous uh, um, menace that all the time like they tried they put that they the left try the communism tried to uh, to take power in Brazil three times through arms and the last phase of their taking over power would be by taking over institutions and cultural uh, sectors. So in so many ways, the, the, the mindset presented by Orville is very similar to the idea of cultural Marxism in the sense that if they cannot take by arms, by revolutionary means, the power, they would like entangle themselves in the system and try to reach power through cultural means. Um, So this is really the backbone of the mindset of Bolsonaro and his sons uh, in the way that I saw in their social media. And the way they did that was really, like I found like... um, Four patterns uh, relate to the construction of this memory. Um, the one that you see, the first, the one-sided, uh, means they narrate the events mainly focusing on the military memory community, as I explained it uh, before, what it is. Uh, usually they ignore 
any unfavorable aspect, including state exposure, torture, political persecution, persecution, people disappearance, censorship. They don't mention it. But when they are forced to mention them, um, they do so only by contra- contrasting these misdeeds uh, with crimes of the left, particular dermid struggle, as I said, the review does, for example. Um, and what, as we said already, so they level off disproportional actors, so they state firepower against a precarious left dermid struggle by equating their crimes. The second pattern is the media's double role, um, in which the media, uh, parallel to the military dictatorship, would be good, a good media, since most of the media at the time uh, defended the coup and the military regime. And the contemporary one is portrayed as bad for siding with the historiography critical to the period what, in their view, would prove uh, it's it's aligned to a leftist, in, between commas, system. The third pattern is the anti-scientific knowledge, uh, which dismisses consensual science and facts uh, concerning the Brazilian dictatorship, allowing them to marginalize and ignore any dissent. Uh, as I said before, such as the mainstream media and the expert system. Um, what I found also, so it's the, it's the first three patterns, and I'm, I'm going to say about the fourth one a little bit later on, but sum it up with two practices that I also find that, that is decontextualization, that happens both by their discourse, so it's a contextualized discourse, uh, and the online environment okay, that's no non-linear, um, and also the other practice, personalization, uh, first-person accounts as proof of reality. They construct the populist mechanism of opposing themselves and their support supporters to their rivals. Uh, so they construct the populist the, the dichotomy of us versus them, so that's why I say that by using this uh, uh, these patterns that I, I identified, they can um, they can um, uh, use that memory for their cultural war. It's not something just related to the dictatorship period, as communism is a. Uh, present menace, my mindset related to the military dictatorship can be applied to present and can be applied to future because the left is all the time lurking there, all the time trying to take power, all the time trying to corrupt the minds of the people. It's morally evil and so on. So that's their discourse. So if you're justifying what happened in the past, right, and you're selectively uh, choosing what you remember, what you leave out. You want to leave out the torture uh, and and uh, uh, the violence, uh, or you justify it as, as necessary to, uh, to, 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 you know, react to, to, to real political threats. Um, you're doing that because you also want to justify that this threat is still there, right? That, that, you still need that uh, government that was 
conservative government that was successful in the past, you still need it to, to, to protect the country. Except now you mentioned what the, the threat is more insidious because it's not armed groups out there that, that you're fighting, fighting it out with that, uh, it's, it's values. It's, it's, it's cultural values that, uh, Brazilian traditional values that are, are being threatened. Exactly. That's why I found out the fourth pattern that is the elastic uh, feature of this memory. I mean, that is elastic because exactly by that, if I think that it's a continuous threat, um, uh, it ends up being very flexible to be put in any time in any place I want. So, for example, in 2019, uh, it's really it was really clear in the data, as you mentioned, they they use the memory both like in the impeachment process, voting, and also Eduardo Bolsonaro in, two, in 2019, while Chile was having like a lot of protests against the right wing government of Sebastián Piñera. Both uh, Eduardo Bolsonaro uh, mentioned that if uh, suggested that the protests in Chile were happening because of of they were like internationally organized uh, and there was a risk that they end up also happening in Brazil and if the it was the case the Brazilian society would have to discuss some ways of curbing them and one thing that he mentioned was I cinco, the the as I said before the institutional act that was one of the most repressive of the di during the dictatorship. So as an elastic memory, like the the law that was implemented in 1968, he brought it up this memory as something that could be uh, considered in the present. If the protests, violent protests that were happening in Chile would uh, would come uh, in Brazil, and also Bolsonaro does that too, and during the COVID pandemic, because there was a lot of anti-democratic protests during that time, they were called anti-democratic because a lot of supporters of Bolsonaro would go to streets to protest and would like ask for military intervention. And, and uh, the opposition uh, took longer to go to the streets because there was the pandemic and the opposition spectrum were more like worried about spreading the disease, but there were some protests against the government during that time, and they end up uh, had like violent uh, um, episodes. Uh, and although they were very like, um, how can I say, very limited, Bolsonaro one day is talking about those protests. He, he mentioned Chile as well. And, and said, though, you remember 2019 Chile, if it happens in Brazil, we should consider something. He didn't say I cinco, but as it was already brought up by Eduardo in 2019, it was like clear that was this, uh, they were like just reproducing a discourse to justify um, 
more harsh and uh, more tough measures. So it's really, um, it's really interesting to see. Um, they, I think the elasticity, as I call it, the pattern is the most relevant. Uh, although the other ones, uh, the other ones help to work to create the, the that memory and the dichotomy between them, clearly between them and the their rivals. But the elasticity is like the pattern that summarizes. Uh, the cultural war and how they see that memory as something that is really useful as a tool uh, to to create fear, actually, among society, using the memory that a lot of people have about the dictatorship as like oh, as, as like something of a threat of communism and a. a um, uh, something that can like can lose like the idea of democracy that this memory entails. Uh, how they use that el- elasticity to to convey that message in in a very um, uh, effective way. I would. And say. I think um, one point I really liked is that well, your discussion of of how the elastic nature of dictatorship, the memory of it, how you can take your reading of the past, apply it for use, different uses in the present, uh, how that proves to be really disastrous w- within the context of, of COVID in Brazil. And you really can't fully understand Bolsonaro's positions or his supporters without understanding how that memory of, or that reading of, reading of dictatorship gets applied to, to that, that context. Um, so how, how does that work in ways that um, end up costing a lot more lives uh, than than had to be the case in Brazil? Yeah, what I so in 2019, I the data of 2019, the first year of his government, I identified the patterns and the practices to construct that memory, and I found the elastic one related to to um, similar. Scenarios in the sense, like for example, 2019 protests in Chile. So you could like kind of relate the protests with similar situations in the dictatorship, as I said. But with COVID, uh, what I found out is that by by discursively and by also, especially by social media, uh, how this memory got simplified. It was so overly simplified that it's kind of dismantled. And the concepts related to the dictatorship, um, rather than construct the whole memory, even the simplistic way of, of, of them constructing that memory, what you see in 2020 is that the concepts related to it, to that memory, like being loose and autonomous pieces that you could like put in any circumstances. So it's really interesting because I, I call that part is like overstretched. It's, a, it's a, the elasticity, the pattern that I found is elasticity in 2019 
it gets overstretched in 2020 because it's COVID-19. It's a contest. It's a sanitary crisis. It's not like attempt to take power is like a sanitary crisis. So you can use like the concepts in such different contexts. And what I realized that he, he real, he used the concepts to use against his rivals and opponents. So for example, they portrayed the mayors and governors uh, who tried to adopt the guidance of uh, the health board organizations as dictators, and the argument would be that they were trying to implement, like by trying to implement lockdowns or social distancing, they were curbing personal freedoms. So if you curb personal freedoms, you're a dictator. Like a dictatorship and they on the left, call, a left, though? I kind of, with that Yeah, the, within the left, this, this status quo uh, of leftist uh, dominance, because what they were fighting were the system, like for them, is like you need to find the system because for it, it's like if with the redemocratization, all the political system that arose were leftist. Even if we have some polit- right wing politicians, if you if if you if I can, so even right wing politicians would be co-opted by this left-wing system. And the and health and like international organizations, health world organization, other organizations, United Nations, would be also corrupted by left-wing mindset. Do you think Brazilians did Brazilians really understand it that way? I mean, could they could, is that something that really people could re- would resonate with them? They could they could relate to that, that, hey, this is like a, another leftist type of power scheme. We've seen this before. We've had to fight this off in the past. And here they go again, trying to trying to run our lives, tell us we have to get these shots. Who knows what's behind that? I, I, I think that um, maybe uh, they cannot articulate as I'm, I'm articulating, but they, this um, loose idea... Uh, started to be in the overall minds, do you know, like very loose ideas. So for example, there was one video that was analyzing, there was a woman in a, in a square uh, in a countryside city in Brazil. And then I don't remember exactly the city, but it was in Sao Paulo state city, uh, Sao Paulo state. It was a city in Sao Paulo state. And then there comes a, police officer saying that she must uh, go home because she could not stay in the square because there was the pandemic and she needed to social distancing. And then she starts to say that she has the freedom, individual freedom to stay whenever she wants. And then she says, here is not China. And for me, it was really interesting because probably she doesn't know uh, exactly where China is, what what is the political system of China and how China, China is powerful or not. But she has this loose idea that China is communist and in communism, you don't allow people to exert their personal freedoms. So... She goes and argue with 
using the word China. <laughs> so what I'm saying is that although people cannot articulate so um, with so much details uh, how the message is conveyed for them, doesn't do not mind. They don't not. Do, they do not mind that the message is so well articulated. They just want actually exactly to people know like some concepts and concepts create a generator. But if it's a Chinese threat, and you mentioned Bolsonaro really plays on that idea too, the Chinese na- nature of the uh, the way the the way the uh, pandemic is depicted as a Chinese threat, a Chinese menace, uh, but that the political a political reading of it, right? Whereas in the U.S., like where you've got attacks on on Chinese Americans and it's generally understood as like a racial <laughs> reading of it. It's not really a political thing as much as a, 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 a kind of a xenophobic type of, 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 of uh, understanding. Um, I think United States, you have both sides. Uh, if I can, under, if I can remember correctly, but I, I guess like when Trump said Chinese virus, uh, he was more like likely like xenophobia, but in Brazil also there was this political reading like related like his there was if, like a cold if war in, more of a cold war reading exactly yeah yeah exactly if like in 1964 the menace would be Soviet Union now the menace would be China because you think like Chinese communist you can just we can like. Uh, complicate that and say, well, it's a communism, but it's a really complex system. But no, no, for people, just the label is enough for them to convey a lot of images in their minds and, um, and, and, and it's really, um, uh, because it's, I think it, it works in some ways, in psychological levels. So you cannot, that's why I'm saying, although people don't, cannot rationally articulate the way I'm articulating, this type of loose concepts uh, reach them in psychological levels of their fears. And so that's why it's so effective and powerful. And so uh, I was saying about like, so they related like mayors and governors as dict- dictators. And they also put like, uh, they portrayed the Supreme Court and Congress with uh, with uh, which they were having like, a lot of problems to put forward their uh, agenda as trying to do a coup against Bolsonaro. So it, it's interesting in 2010, 20 to see the data because what they do is all the time uh, as during the campaign and during the presidency they, the government was Bolsonaro was accused of trying to do a coup or to be to have an authoritarian government in Brazil. They in 2020 use the same language and same symbols against them, their opponents and like inverted mirror to their, their opponents. So the two, 2020 data is really interesting in that sense. And there's like elasticity of this memory um, 
works in that way. It's so loose. The concepts are so loose, are so, uh, they, they are, they are entangled in such a simplistic operation that you can do whatever you want with the concepts related to the memory. So what are your thoughts? Because I thought the way you concluded your book, you were kind of pointing to, well, even if Bolsonaro leaves the political scene, that this legacy, this use of the digital memory has lasting consequences for Brazil's democracy, its cohesiveness as a society. Uh, and we've seen a glimpse of, of maybe the future with these supporters that uh, are attacking government buildings, refusing to accept the results of the elections. Uh, do you feel like there's just a divide now in Brazil that, uh, or uh, democracy, um, which really hasn't been around that long since 1985, uh, uh, has been really weakened uh, in, in lasting ways, or, or is it just too too early to tell? I think, uh, I hope it's too early to tell. <laughs> you still have no. your job in a, for a free, a free newspaper, so that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> I think <laughs> hopefully it's George though. What what I can say about the memory uh, specifically, that's my topic. I think um you're gonna see a long term uh uh effect on that because if like before Bolsonaro this memory were like restricted to conservative groups or the military community and it was restrained there and there was like the hegemony of the critical memory was really clear. Um, when Bolsonaro uh, takes power, it he legitimates his memory, this memory. And, and it's different that you... You have like the first time in Brazilian history a president that puts in check uh, this past officially. So uh, I see long term uh, effects on that. Like for example, one of my sisters, one day of that, my I have one sister who said he, she is not Bolsonarist, but all the time I I hear her like saying stuff that. God is spread in Bolsonaro's channels. For example, she was like one day talking about crimes and then she said, well, you know, human rights, what a bad thing, human rights. <laughs> you know, like although she, she, she is not Bolsonarist, a lot of ideas related to Bolsonarism that were legitimated with Bolsonarism are replicated in the society. And I see them. Uh, or, for example, one day she was talking about Brazilian dictatorship and was like, ah, so Portugal dictatorship was really bad. A lot of people killed. In Brazil, it's not that bad. It's not that a huge dictatorship. So, um, so you see that a lot of ideas related to that were legitimate legitimized and officialized. And I think for these two examples that I gave, that is going to have long-term effects. 
And he's now, recently he, um, the electoral court um, turned him ineligible for the next eight years. But he's a really prominent figure figure, uh, up to now. Everybody still talks about him because he also has a lot of scandals keep arising uh, related to his tenure. And, and uh, he's going to capitalize in that as like he's being um, prosecuted or lost the capacity of try to run to the next elections because he's being persecuted for the rigged system of the left. <laughs> so he's going to use it. And I think in the same, similarly to United States, he's going to keep himself as a prominent figure. And also there was the problem with Lula government as well, in the sense that um, uh, Lula sometimes, I think, helps feed this movement. Uh, for example, recently, uh, this year, uh, he gave a lot of declarations um, uh, favoring Maduro in Venezuela. And although I think it's really necessary to have pragmatic foreign relations of whatever country, because like every nation has its own interests. So it's necessary to have relations to, to um, the majority of countries. Um, I think he does a lot of bad things to himself by declaring uh, he personally likes Maduro. Do you know, like, uh, recently he declared, for example, that a lot of critique that is made against Venezuela are narratives as if persecution against political actors or fraud allegations in elections wouldn't be true. So uh, as I, I was studying that memory and, how, and saw how Venezuela uh, and Cuba or other leftist countries were used as tools to create this idea of something that you need to fight off. When he does that, he really contributes to feed that uh, far-right narrative that, ah, yeah, oh, he's proving that he's aligned with Venezuela and probably he's a communist. Um, so I think mistakes uh, of Lula in his current mandate and can like create problems for the next years and also maintain uh, visible and viable uh, a far right reading of the past and the present of Brazil. So democracy, I think, is not in risk. I think like our institutions prove it, they, they really worked to uh, curb. Uh, I mean, you did have a peaceful, I mean, maybe not peaceful, but you, you had uh, an exchange of power. Uh, so this, the, the elections did work. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, although there are like some 
inequality and division of power. There are are some problems with Congress, with Supreme Court, and also with the executive power, but everything is working. I think like if Bolsonaro won, would be a bigger problem. But I think the impact to, to, in long term, the impact, especially for that memory, um, is, is, is something that is, is really in check, I, I guess, uh, for the things that I see people talking, people around me. And I'm, I, I understand that it's like something that really um, glue it, like if I can say that, a lot of concepts that they conveyed during this four years really are in, within society right now. And it's so it's going to have long-term effects for sure. Leda, thank you so much for, for taking so much time to talk to me today. And I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much, Rick. Leda Balbino is a journalist and researcher in Brazil. She works as a deputy editor at the foreign desk of O Globo, one of Brazil's leading newspapers. I've been talking with her today about her recent book, Digital Memory in Brazil, a fragmented and elastic negationist remembrance of the dictatorship. Next month, we'll turn to South Korea. We'll feature the memory of the brutal suppression of the uprising in Gwangju, the pivotal moment that marks the turn from dictatorship to democracy in South Korea. I'll be speaking with Professor Heiran Shin from Seoul National University about her book, The Cultural Politics of Urban Development in South Korea, Art, Memory, and Urban Boosterism in Gwangju. If you've enjoyed this or other episodes of the Realms of Memory podcast, word of mouth is always the best way to inform others. Tell a friend, send a link, or review us on your favorite podcast app. I'm Rick Dadarian. See you soon.